All right. We're all good. Now. This is the first episode as, of uh, As a Black Man. Camille Foster. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a good show. Lego. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings. Welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. I am uh, Camille Foster of Freethink Media. Delighted to be here with you for episode 10. This is, in fact, episode 10. We've made it a very, very long way. Um, The triumvirate is once again all fully assembled in the same room. Can feel all of the uh, intellectual power coursing through the Mm. room. It's very exciting. Feel a thrill going up my leg. Or perhaps that's just Matt. I thought that was Thad Russell's <laughs> Musk. That is, Weird Matt. The, Look at you, Matt. It's a, ruining it's our, ruining it's, everything. Yeah, spoiling I, the surprise for the people. With the, the, people with the Russell Musk. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus, Musk. Yeah, get, yeah. It, get into we are, it. We are joined today. Of course, I am joined anyways uh, by Michael Moynihan, Daily Beast, and uh, Vice News. Uh, Matt Welch, Reason Magazine. Gentlemen, how are you? You know. Great. All right. That's no, great. Very, we'll see. Very excited. We'll see how it goes. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I am fucking great. That's, oh, I'm so glad. Wow. Yeah. Dirty, I'm really glad. Dirty man. A lot of enthusiasm there. <laughs> start, we are also joined by a, by a wonderful, exceptional, uh, remarkable, remarkable guest. Don't. Controversial. Do it, Can we say controversial? He too? is controversial. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, he's a legendary social media troll. But of course, he only uses his powers <laughs> for good and righteousness, like defending me on Twitter. Yeah. Thaddeus Russell. Historian, professor, author. Do that. That's, that's the renegade historian. Yeah, visits us all the way from the West Coast. Although he took a train from D.C. yesterday to join us. So you know, I flew. All the way, I flew all the way across the country to fight with Moynihan. So yeah. can, can we get going? Can we get, this, can we get into this? We we will. We <laughs> yeah. will. We will. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, last week we were we were in separate locations. Um, Welch was apparently off someplace. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, his his trip to the LP convention in beautiful cosmopolitan Orlando, Florida. Orlando! Yeah, you know what they yeah. say about Orlando. I don't, actually. <laughs> but Matt, Matt, by the way, uh, who traveled there along with every other journalist in America. Seems, which is, which is right? amazing. Right? So we are talking about this, not because this is a libertarian podcast, and it's not. It's a podcast that over-indexes for libertarians. Mm-hmm. Get that? You see? The distinction? But we're talking about it because it's huge news, so we're going to talk about that, of course. Um, We've also got a few things on tap. I guess we have to talk about the primary, which refuses to end, Um, and we'll we'll get into that a bit. And, of course, because that is here, uh, we are going to talk a bit about blowback in U.S. foreign policy, and that is going to educate Mr. Moynihan on the subject. <laughs> you guys are like setting this up. As, as we are, like, you know, yes. this is like the rumble Don't, in the jungle. This isn't going dis- to. This isn't going dis- to. I'm going to be the Ken Norton of this. I'm my, the crab defense. I'm going to keep my arms up in the crab defense. Bad day, um, boy, yeah, but but we did we did have an exciting week last week. Um, Matt, you went all the way down to Orlando, as I mentioned a little earlier. Uh, you attended this thing. Hundreds of journalists were also in attendance with you, which apparently is out of the norm for the LP convention. Um, there is an unusual level of interest in what the Libertarian Party is doing right now, because I suspect there is so much disinterest in what the two major parties are doing or, or displeasure is perhaps the right word. The most important thing uh, that I took away from the Libertarian convention was that there were more than 10 people who walked up to me and said, I totally love the Fifth Column uh, podcast. Boom. That's not surprising. Volunteered it. Volunteered it. They uh, also universally said nice things about uh, Camille. uh, That's appropriate. um, That's good. And uh, and mostly ignored Moynihan or said that they... uh, Don't really understand where he's coming from. By the way, you all of you get, get go to uh, HBO Go and see me not talk at all on uh, Bill Maher on Friday, <laughs> which because I was I was yelled at by uh, by uh, the former Libertarian Party uh, vice presidential oh, candidate God. who um, didn't say anything even remotely libertarian. People think that I'm bad. Yeah, to Wayne Allen Root. But like, yeah, I suppose we'll get to that. But in the at the convention in Orlando, I was gonna go, but I had to do this uh, Maher show, which was kind of a waste of time. Um, but everybody, tell, tell me about this, because everybody that I know that is like a halfway sort of decent journalist was there. It's not just the Weigel types uh, and the sort of like Robert Costas and people like, oh, it's an interesting thing. Everybody was there. I mean, and, and so this morning, and I sent this to you guys, uh, Seth Stevenson 
um, who I'd never heard of <laughs> from Slate and I hope to never hear from again, wrote a piece about how he went to the Libertarian Party uh, conference and everybody was crazy. And now this is the piece that writes itself, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone does this bullshit uh, piece or, or, or says something stupid like, oh, you know, they're all crazy gold bugs and everything. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. Did you read this thing, Matt? Uh, yeah, I glanced at it, yeah. What do, you, what do you think about this? Uh, well, first of all, the the convention was held very helpfully right across the uh, next door convention center, which was Megacon. So like 80,000 comic books nerds in costume. Yeah. So and they were sharing the same. It's called cosplay. Yeah. Uh, This is not. I don't know what that that means. It's like cisgender community. I don't even understand the term. Yeah. It's Uh, the same thing. So uh, no. So like you'd be John McAfee. Uh, who was like the who yeah. came in third place uh, uh, in the uh, uh, presidential nomination nominating race? There, uh, he would be standing there, and then suddenly a seven foot tall Hagrid would, yeah. <laughs> would come by. <laughs> and put the his best arm. part was when it was revealed that it was Bill Weld when he took the head off. It's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, wow. amazing. Uh, so, but the surprising thing was, so there are two hundred and fifty journalists credentialed there. Two hundred and fifty. The last right. uh, Libertarian mm-hmm. uh, convention, there was maybe twenty. Credentialed. So there's wow. just nothing remotely like the level yeah. of, of mm. interest here. But the shocking thing was for the first like two days, people didn't use the obvious Megacon uh, joke. Uh, they were actually giving, treating the proceedings and treating the kind of struggles on the floor, which was mostly uh, crudely between the kind of radical purists and the pragmatic squishes, um, which was a lot of tension. And it's very interesting to observe it. But they're treating it with sort of respect. And uh, and this is a thing that's happening this year in politics. There's all kinds of upside. This is the third party at this point in America. Um, if and when, and, and it became when uh, uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld uh, get the nomination, then these, you know, they're polling at around 9% in national polls whenever they're put in there. So it was treated with respect. It was only at the end that a few people uh, did their stories. And the problem with their stories were, were like, oh, it's a party full of crazy people, for which there's plenty of evidence. And let's not hide the lead here. Yeah, no, that no. is actually true. <laughs> should, should toddlers high on totally. LSD be required to obtain state issued driver's license before they take to the highway? Yeah. Exactly. That was an actual question? Uh, posed? It was close. It was close. Okay. No, it was I mean, there was the, the presidential debate on uh, Saturday night down there was like the biggest advertisement against libertarianism <laughs> you could ever imagine. It's on C-SPAN, right? So people are watching at home and Gary Johnson's getting by far the biggest booze everywhere because he suggests that there might maybe be a government role in licensing people to drive their automobiles. Uh, he refused to uh, <laughs> he refused to uh, 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 statutorily or, or whatever. He refused to condemn the bomb in Hiroshima. Uh, I'm trying to inflame that here a little bit. Didn't Uh, like that. uh, He uh, attacked the Iran deal for uh, helping out the mullahs. Was he pro Nagasaki? Or was he just... Uh, Actually, no. no. He was was like like, Nagasaki. (laughs) He didn't go that far. Yeah, that was a little questionable. (laughs) It was more like he didn't want a second guess. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, and heroin and five-year-olds and all this kind of stuff. Because he's the the pragmatist out there. And so he was getting loudly booed. And Daryl W. Perry, who's the biggest kind of radical there running for president, uh, he's got big Spock ears and a a mullet. So some of this is self-inflicted. They, they're, uh, they're real Spock ears? No. We, no, 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 no. Well, they're real ears. They're real ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, wasn't, he didn't just come from across the street from the, the no. cosplay I mean, convention. There were some he just people, looked like it. There yeah. were uh, people at the convention, there always is, uh, including on the executive committee, Starchild is a Reason subscriber, and I love mm. Starchild uh, to Love death. me some Starchild. Uh, he's a, a phenomenal uh, erotic services worker from mm-hmm. San Francisco who wears a, a great new costume every day, like little half shirts, and always wearing sort of like a, a plastic see-through uh, trench coat. Just phenomenal. Those are, those are my people. He's on the executive committee of the National sure, Libertarian sure, Party. Yeah. So there definitely were some people in costumes. But anyways, the problem with the Seth Stevenson story is that it's, oh, Libertarian Party is a bunch of loons. But the loons, uh, many of whom were just radical uh, anarchists like our friend Camille, um, uh, hmm, they lost sure. the basic fight. Yeah. The people who won were the ones who were nodding towards pragmatism, who now have created a ticket that's the most experienced in running like governmental institutions that's currently running uh, for president right now. Hmm. So to watch, uh, to me, the, the, the kind of uh, analogy here. Um, the tension between uh, the, the the camps is similar to what's happened like in gay rights movement and the weed legalization movement. For a long time, the, the people who were working on those issues were really lonely. They're really small. And so it was all squirrel tail mustaches and huge uh, crazy parades in the village in San Francisco and kind of like, you know, you have to put shove the squares noses in things. But then when they get to a level of breakthrough, um, there's a lot of people who've been there from the beginning 
are conflicted about it, you know, I, yeah, and they, I, and they I, wonder it, about, uh, about uh, hey, you're selling out the purity of our message. It, it's frustrating because, look, I get, I mean, to your point, I mean, we can't ignore the fact that the Libertarian Party does attract a, its fair share of weirdos, right? And at a convention, especially, that's because that's their social oh, sure. ev- social event for, for the next four years. They're all going to go and see their <laughs> friends there. It's fine. No problem. But I do get really frustrated when I see people like, uh, you know, especially conservatives uh, writing these pieces because... You know, all of us here, I assume, I don't know about that, I know you guys, uh, Matt and Camille, have been to CPAC, which is populated by sure. people dressed up as Thomas Jefferson, eating, like, <laughs> breakfast in the morning with, like, powdered wigs on. <laughs> and then you walk into the main uh, uh, hall, and I remember I did a vi- video of this for, for a reason. I walked into the main hall, and I had a very long conversation, there's a little bit of it in the video that I did, with the guys from the John Birch Society, in which I was arguing with him that no... Eisenhower wasn't actually a member of the Communist Party. Uh, he was a Republican and he was the president. And like, so there's kooks everywhere. You go to the net roots stuff. I don't, I don't even know if that's still, which was, you know, colloquially called the nut roots for so, for so long because there's a lot of like nutty far left people. I mean, the, I, the, this is what people, crazy people go to these things. Including the Democratic and Republican National Conventions of which sure. I've been yeah, going to absolutely. since 2000. Yeah. Absolutely. That to me is like a, a crazy freak show. Well, Fed, have you had much experience with the, the LP proper do you know much about this zany organization almost none no yeah i tend to know the sort of non-establishment libertarians yeah Uh, so i mean i heard a lot of this about you know the wackos and that there was a nude guy there was a naked guy or a streaker or something striptease who was running for national chair and and i know that he pulled his genitals out i I mean he he had a freedom thong so (laughs) and by the way he had an iron cross tattoo on his arm just for the record so it's true isn't that good though he just picked it out of i mean you know, this is like anti-respectability politics. I kind of like that, right? I mean, sure. it's a good thing, isn't sure. it? I mean, would we prefer all of our politicians to be in suits and ties and speaking, you know, from talking points, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, this is this is really Trump's appeal, too, right? That he's breaking through that himself. It, it works for Trump because there's something about Trump, char- charisma, fame, or something. Um, I don't know if it will work particularly well for Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. Like, I, I don't know. And, and I guess what you're suggesting is actually something else. That, that the Libertarian Party itself being letting its freak flag fly, being sort of outsiders is, in fact, it, a good thing. But there's also something really puritanical about mm, their approach. Mm. Right. Like they're not willing to be pragmatic and take advantage of this this perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity well, I to mean, maybe influence the direction of policy. It should be a protest party, for God's sake. I mean, yeah. that's the point of this thing, isn't it? I mean, are they really are we really serious about becoming president of the United States. Yeah. That seems sort of contradictory as well. well it so, should be a protest party, and therefore it should let its freak flag fly. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. A, a, and, and, and we're speaking broadly about the party, and we should clarify, obviously there are different factions within <laughs> yeah. the party, and I'm sure you saw this firsthand, Matt, that some, some people there very enthusiastic about the opportunity to push two guys forward that might actually have a chance to rate in the polls and end up on the debate stage and then there are others and i don't well, know if it's a majority You'll well weld is clearly not a libertarian though well weld, weld is really no he's not good has not been historically in terms of yeah we, policy uh i was there with brian doherty and uh, zach weissman and josh swain from uh, reason tv and we were interviewing people constantly and talking to people constantly drinking a little bit uh and uh none of us ever encountered a single person there of the cumulative hundreds that we talked to who had a nice thing to say about Bill Weld, who wasn't in the Gary Johnson campaign. I mean, mm. not even one. There wasn't even yeah. like, oh, well, he's a nice guy. I just disagree with him on stuff. Like, he was loathed. And he uh, he came within an eyelash of not getting the nomination. It was only because Gary Johnson repeatedly pleaded with them saying, look, I know he's not perfect, but please trust me. If we, we put him on the ticket, we have a chance to get in these polls and these kind of things. I, I, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, no, but isn't that, you know, the reason for somebody like Bill Weld? I mean... The, the wow! What was that? Did I win the prize? That's just to show that you too are a yeah. asshole. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. I got a copy of his novel. Do you give us a say insight on Bill Weld being a uh, OG uh, asshole from back I, in the day? Well, he's actually from upstate New York, so we don't consider him a real uh, uh, asshole. Okay. He was just the governor. But the thing about it is, you know, I, I wonder if this stuff actually works or if it sticks. But the idea being that Bill Weld can be a liberal, a conservative, he can be whatever he wants, and the 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 point of this is to draw. A Attention 
to a third party that most people that I know don't know exists. And I mean, I, you know, there, there are two camps in your life, I presume, as sort of you know, people that are, you know, you know, from Reason Magazine, you know, from the political world and people, you know, that are just friends of yours, you know, that just aren't really invested in politics and they don't quite know what the Libertarian Party is. Sure. And it's good that if they get on the debate stage, if or, you know, which I don't think is going to happen, but if they rate well in the polls in a Perot way, I mean, like, you know, Perot starting... His party, Pat Buchanan, saying these are just like we have to. It's like the Bill Crystal Renegade Party that that was talking. Don't, about. don't get me started. We're gonna get into <laughs> that too. We're gonna get into that. But kick his ass. It's the idea that these things come and go. You just need a label for it for for one cycle. The LP has been around for a long time. And is this a point that you know? Regardless, I mean, Gary Johnson, I think is is you know pretty libertarian. I mean, I I know that a lot sure. of people disagree with him on a lot of things. Bill Weld, you know, the vice presidential uh, nominee for the LP. It just doesn't seem to matter that much other than the fact that it's a certain level of respectability that, 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 that comes to journalists. Journalists yeah. pay attention to this because Bill Weld's a real person yeah. and because uh, Gary Johnson's a former governor of, of New Mexico. And, you know, also journalists are, you know, Trump is right about this. Journalists are invested in defeating him. And the, if that, if they can pull votes away from the Republican candidate by pushing them towards libertarians. That's probably why there's 250 people there covering it. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think the thing that they get wrong is to assume that this is mostly going to pull from Republicans. Yes, that's when, right. That, sure. that hasn't been the case in polling so far in this short period of time hmm. about the specific race. And it just hasn't been uh, in true in general about Republicans for the last bit. I think put a little button on it is that uh, what Will, Weld is stressing and what Johnson Weld are both stressing uh, in their media interviews is, yes, we're a libertarian party, but we're that block that is fiscally conservative, socially liberal, right. which is about half the country, 44 percent, according to Gallup, I think it was from last year. And if you have those things and I would describe myself more or less that way, if I was being crude, um, uh, you have no home. I mean, there's there isn't a normal place for you, yeah. certainly in the po political uh, parties themselves, but definitely behind those fucking candidates yeah, yeah. Uh, in both sides. You just don't have a natural place. Weldon Johnson saying, hey, look, you've a lot of you feel like that. Come here. I know libertarians sound a little bit weird, and we are, but like come in here, and uh, I think it's an opportunity. So is this, I mean, is this a good thing, the kind of Europeanization of American politics? I mean, if you look uh, at the liberal side of the equation, you have... You know, Bernie Sanders is a traditional social democrat. You have those parties in Europe. You have, you know, Hillary Clinton, these sort of mainstream, maybe left of center. And I think in, in Europe, it'd be sort of right of center neoliberal party, quote unquote, neoliberal party. Mm -hmm. And then on, on the right, you have the populist, you know, the Trump populist. Then you have the traditional sort of, you know, Catholic conservative parties like you have in Germany or Christian conservative parties. I mean, this fragmentation looks more and more European every day. And, and you know, the libertarian, because we don't have those sort of six parties you can pull from sort of parliamentary voting sure. is that, you know, there's a unique opportunity that because we're kind of Europeanizing and don't really have the, the sort of infrastructure, the political infrastructure to do that, libertarians benefit hugely from this, don't they? Is that, is this not I, giving the renegades like a seat at the table? Yeah, I've always been pro-fragmentation, you know, I mean, that's always been my line too, yeah. for years and years, right? Let's be yeah. more European in that way, right? Yeah. And give us more choice, I want more choice. But the thing is, you, Camille, you actually convinced me, I think a, a week ago, or two weeks ago, when you yep. said, well, it's all good, except the choices that were being offered actually aren't so great anyway, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like these people are all across the board, basically hostile to free trade, free markets, immigration, even Bernie Sanders is not great on immigration, yeah. right? These are base, these are sort of left and right populists, yes, right? Yes, Neither right. of which any of the people in this room are very excited about, yeah, right? So, right. you know, I don't know. The, uh, yeah, a choice. This is good. Thad, just to underscore this, uh -oh. is espousing the various tenets of the never, not the never Trump, uh, but the meh Trump crowd. There you go. <laughs> like me. Hashtag Met Trump. To both of those points, uh, Gallup had, it's, has been following the political typology of people based on questions you answer about the proper role of, of government. And they released their latest in, in, in February of this year. And they uh, break it out into four categories, liberals, conservatives, populists hmm. and libertarians hmm. and for the first and they've been doing this for for like two decades and for the first time in february the biggest one of those was libertarians mm. it was at 27 yeah. percent. i think liberals was at 26 populist was down to 14 which doesn't sound right this year it feels like populists are winning everything mm -hmm. uh but uh it's it's uh, it, there may be four tendencies in this country yeah. instead of just two yeah and I, I think that's great and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and and i don't want it to sound too much like we're uh, throwing shade at the uh, at the lp proper um i think that there is certainly. something there is something fantastic and wonderful about having 
um, a group of people that are out there fighting on the margins for, for what seem like very esoteric and absurd and strange things to outsiders. Um, I go and fight people uh, about things in strange and absurd ways, like going into a, uh, a debate with transgender people to tell them <laughs> that they don't need special laws to protect them. <laughs> yeah, we don't God. need special classes of people created by the federal as a black As a black man? As a, I don't know. I can't a, believe you would say that. As a black man, Barack could get shot going to the gas station. <laughs> Not why, really. why did you go there? Really. I know Jeez. I'm allowed to do anything. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but we will pivot to the uh, to the second story, which we've kind of already arrived there. The never ending primary. This is the 598th dispatch uh, from the fifth column on this primary. Trump sits astride the GOP. I like that word in this context. Yeah, what does that mean? Astride. Sitting astride. Well, is that like know, straddling? It sounds apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. He's like, straddling. Sort of four horsemen. It's nasty. Yeah, I like I like it. Okay, because, but we're not going to talk about that all that much. Sanders versus Clinton coming up in California. Apparently, there's some consequence there. I don't know. You guys can 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 inform me. There's some dude named David French. That's, don't know who the hell he is. That's now we should probably talking. talk about. <laughs> yeah, that. we need to get to that. Um, it's a huge and, issue. And towards the end of this block, <laughs> Thad, I want you to tell me because someone on Twitter has asked, hmm. who is worse on foreign policy, Trump? Clinton. So Moynihan is worse. <laughs> I've teased everything. I, I just I want to point out by the before you get to that, I don't write about foreign policy. And this is just this self-propelling kind of self-perpetuating uh-huh. thing. Yeah. I mean, you're you saying know, you don't know anything about foreign I, policy. No, I know. He's never heard it. of it. I just, I just don't write about it. Somehow, <laughs> somehow I'm this like, you know, sinister mustache twisting, you know, petting a cat, bombing, I you know, brown it. people. Michael, it's, it's all going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, Within 20 minutes, this yeah, actually, is all going to be worked yeah, out. Yeah, We're going to straighten this all out. So, so someone tell me who, who the hell is David French? Why is this happening? This what? is this is the I'm stepping on it because I, I go was, for it. I uh, yeah. wrote a piece for the Spectator UK. Is that a reputable uh, organization? A, it's one of the best magazines in oh, the world. Yeah, I, I, I love it. It's I, so good. Sorry, we're just geeking on British. And, and by the way, just to say to, to 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 listeners, read it because you know it has this, this reputation of being like a sort of a Tory. The sort of right of center magazine, and they are all over the place. I mean, Boris Johnson used to be the editor, and there was a great uh, article attacking him last week. They have uh, guys like Peter Oborn, who has the cover, I think, this week, who is, you know, not a non interventionist. He's basically an isolationist. I mean, they're all over the place on foreign policy. They're in, in always an interesting magazine. So it's a good byline to have, man. Well, they, uh, that's, uh, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I also met a guy from Standpoint, uh, which is another great magazine yes. in, in uh, England. Um, uh, so Bill Crystal who we've talked about on this program previously with his various fantasies, his green room fantasies about having an independence, never Trumper uh, candidate. He's been uh, approached Mitt Romney and Ben Sass, and then like people in the house that you've never heard of in your life. Uh, On Sunday, he said, you know, uh, sit tight, but over this Memorial day weekend, we're going to have a credible independent candidate uh, with a lot of backing. It's really going to, it's finally going to happen. And I got a lot of attention. Uh, obviously, Memorial Day came and went. Monday came and went. And then it was Tuesday afternoon. And then Bloomberg breaks the story. The great candidate he's thinking about is National Review contributor David A. French. <laughs> I mean, yeah. From, <laughs> from Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, which, as someone pointed out, he's probably the number two uh uh, a conservative writer with a name David F.R. <laughs> in North America. <laughs> that, that's, uh, someone, that's someone being you? Uh, no, actually, uh, somebody no, else. Someone else. Uh, okay. David French is an Iraq war veteran. He used to be the president of uh, FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, oh, which is a very good, uh, very good group, uh, free speech on campus. Uh, and he is a hawkish guy who's a social conservative. He also writes Game of Thrones recaps. Of, uh, out there, does he he emits all of the the gay love love making? Uh, the... He's not so great about all of the gays doing all the gay stuff. Yeah, uh, and he is now uh, Bill Crystal's idea. What makes this so ridiculous, among other things, is that uh, at this point it is impossible, literally, to get onto a debate stage, which is the only point if you're going to run a never Trump independent campaign is that you yeah. want to be on the debate stage. Yeah. To get on the debate stage, you need two things: you need to be averaging fifteen percent in the national polls. So. David A. French, you know, name recognition. <laughs> That's going to be a problem in itself. But the other thing you have to have is ballot access. You have to have enough ballot access 
which means you have to collect signatures by deadlines in 50 states plus Washington, D.C., enough ballot access so that you could theoretically win the Electoral College. But Do they, you think but Bill Crystal is out there gathering signatures <laughs> in Rhode Island? No. Right now in the rain? No. They, no, they, I mean, don't, the, they I, don't care about that. I'm going to say it's a brief thing in defense of a guy whose stuff I've never read. <laughs> David French. Um, <laughs> I do. I mean, the who more I, By the way, point of order, he hasn't uh, accepted as far as we know. So yeah, as far as we know. I mean, this whole thing is crazy. Uh, the first thing to point out is uh, this morning I saw somewhere on my Facebook feed, uh, my uh, Twitter feed, that on Hugh Hewitt this morning, uh, Fred Barnes was on, who is Bill Crystal's uh, compadre at the Weekly Standard. So I, I looked it up and then there was an audio of it. And... <laughs> Fred Barnes was making fun of Bill Crystal this morning on the Hugh Hewitt show. He's like, I don't know what he's doing. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You know, I don't know. David French like seems like a nice guy, whatever. But, you know, what is he talking about? So even people within that kind of universe of the Weekly Standard are are laughing at this. The one thing I'll say slightly in the defense of somebody, again, whose positions I don't know anything about, I do know his wife was uh, Sarah Palin's ghostwriter, which is oh. kind of a, <laughs> kind of a knock against him. But um, is that I do I like the fact. I mean, we all often uh, bitch about these kind of dynastic political families, of which Bill Crystal, by the way, is a part of, um, but in a, in, a, in a kind of pundit way of the, you know, let's say the Clinton Clinton family, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the Bushes. The Paul had, family. The Paul family. We've had a lot. We've Dastardly had all, We've had a lot of that in the last uh, couple of election cycles. I kind of like just picking some random dude. Yeah. I can, there's something about it. I just, I'm like, oh, that's great. I'd love to see him uh, debate somebody who has n- you know no skin in the game whatsoever and can just be ideologically sort yeah. of honest about his position. But here's Camille's argument, though. So we have more choice, but what are we getting? Exactly. <laughs> Which choice? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't say this is a good choice, but this is a choice. It's a different choice. Well, we don't know if he's going to run, but his his most recent tweet, as of right now, this moment, as we record, is all the normal political rules apply. The conventional wisdom is has been right. An underdog can't win, right? Question mark. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very mysterious. Yes. Uh, very he, mysterious. Dude, you're not going to win. <laughs> Less than one month ago, he wrote a piece uh, about Gary Johnson and saying uh, at first glance, he looks like a really strong candidate. It was like super. Uh, you know, he's on all 50 ballots and looks pretty good on things. He ultimately objected to him because of the weed and the abortions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very dangerous combination. Wow. Doing abortions while high. On weed. <laughs> Don't do it's it. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Don't trust that gentleman. Uh, so, Thad, yeah. this, this whole Trump, Clinton, perhaps Sanders, who is worse on foreign policy? Do you have an answer to this question? Have you have you thought this through? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Trump, you know, strikes me as basically a nationalist. So he's, he actually reminds me of McCain a bit in that way. Mm-hmm. He clearly doesn't have sort of a coherent f- set of ideas about foreign policy. He doesn't have a global vision. No. Believe it or not. Uh, that's a very good thing. Uh, I do think... He would make the Middle East worse. I think he would intervene perhaps more strongly than Obama has. Not a lot more, but he'd do more bombing. He's certainly promised that. I think he'd do less in the rest of the world, hmm. which is a very good thing. You know, and he's he's has he's had his isolationist moments, which I think is useful. Um, pulling out of NATO, forcing other countries to defend themselves, et cetera. I know there's fans of NATO in this room. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think it'll be a mixed bag. But I think... If you look at the history of the United States and the people who have done the most killing, it's been the globalists. It's been the Wilsonian globalists who have had this vision of a Pax Americana, you know, United States ruling the world and making the world in its own image. Trump doesn't have that. Hillary Clinton does. So I think Hillary Clinton will, you know, extend U.S. reach and do tremendous damage. Don't you think it's entirely likely that Trump could, in fact, develop that? That if his vice presidential pick was some guy by the name of Cotton, for he, example. He, so the 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 Wilsonian globalists of the last hundred years have all been intellectuals. They've all been basically progressive intellectuals. And can, I, can I interject? Simply doesn't have that in him, right? Are are you uh, including neoconservatives in that? Yeah, in that absolutely, yes, so they, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the most people who are serious in their study of neoconservatives see that they basically are inheriting progressivism. My, I mean, uh, my uh, line... They'll say it themselves. I mean, that their heroes are Wilson and Truman, etc. My line, which has stubbornly failed to take off despite me repeating it at every opportunity, is Go that neoconservatives it, are Wilsonians with a fuck France t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. See, that's, they I love think, France. Now. I think that's true. <laughs> the I think, I think fuck this is the France time. inflection. Yeah. This yep. is the time when that's going to take off. Like right now, this yeah, is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think Except something new conservative is kind the, of dead as, a, as something that people cop to. The, the important point that Thad makes, which is something that's actually mystified me about 
um, the kind of, I, I guess, for, you know, neocon say, well, well we're going to vote, you know, Robert Kagan writing, I'm going to vote for Hillary. Mm-hmm. Number of people saying they're going to vote for people privately that I know saying oh, yeah. they're going to vote for Hillary. The idea, they have this really bizarre vision of Donald Trump. And it makes you question what they, I mean, that they are continuing this idea of the foreign policy that they had in 2003, this sort of Victor Davis Hanson idea of foreign policy, which I'm sure he'd vote for Hillary Clinton, too. Because the point that Thad made, which I totally agree with, is this idea that Donald Trump is, you know, some sort of Taftian isolationist, because there is, like everything, a complete schizophrenia in, in, in his, you know, foreign policy views, where he's like, when I went to, just to give an example, I went to see a Trump rally in Iowa, and there's a guy out in front, and everyone's buying his pins, and the pins that he's selling is say, bomb the shit out of ISIS, right? <laughs> and that, and of course, that's a Trump line, bomb the shit. You know, we'll put a, we'll put a um, you know, little camp in the middle of Syria where everyone can go. You know, this is like an amazing thing. The fact that this is how crazy this election is, is like people forget about stuff like this. We have a safe zone for them in, in, in Syria and they will just kind of bomb around it. And because ISIS will stay outside of it. And then it is, it's well, you so won't, you bizarre. Won't let them in. You won't yeah, let them in. Yeah, he won't let them in. Because yeah. it's going to be a wall. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah. It's going to be tall. It's just going to have like nice Syrians. And all the bad ones will just be bombing on the outside. Right. But the idea that his foreign policy is some kind of isolationist or or even anti-interventionist, it is, you know, belied by all the evidence that suggests that depending on what audience he's speaking to, he can t- uh, speak to the, you know, Republican, uh, Jewish, whatever coalition and say, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make nice with everybody. I'm going to treat everybody equally in the Middle East. I, you know, this is how my and then the next thing you know, he's uh, getting a speech written by uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who's the owner of The New York Observer which is very sort of Netanyahu-like the next day. I mean, people are abandoning him. These conservatives are abandoning him because I guess he's just not firm enough in in his kind of foreign policy vision. But if he's elected, I don't think these people are going to be terribly disappointed. I think that that their objection, if I could step into their mindset a little bit, is a combination of temperament. He just seems like a crazy person, yeah. unfit for office, That's which I, I agree. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, and, and, and just to interrupt briefly, is that I don't think it's only about foreign policy. I don't think it's. I don't think that's the only thing. Yes, uh, and their other objection is that he does say things that that they have safely attempted to make unsayable for a long time. So ultimately, he's not going to withdraw from NATO, and he's not going to like come out and say that. He's sort of crept up to the edges of it, but then it became, oh, they need to pay more of their freight and you know we're not going to completely disband from that uh he's said inconsistent things about vladimir putin uh and all these kind of things but you're not even supposed to suggest that i mean it's so much and this is the 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 classic uh kind of uh thing that trump has done he has blown up the 35 yard lines on on which between which all national discourse especially about foreign policy is supposed to take place safely and so when you go out there and i disagree with him on a lot of things he says like that including about foreign policy sometimes especially whenever it's uh it's uh, anything but purely hostile to putin which i think you need to be when you wake up in the morning just to keep your your (laughs) corpuscles working out well but uh like there's nothing healthy about walling off debate on foreign policy and he has actually blown that up and i think that's useful very useful i like that too matt Wow. See, people agree with us. You guys are doing well. Doing well. It's just that I'm totally in favor. uh, I was totally in favor of expanding NATO after the Cold War. Yeah. 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 I I hear you on I hear you on the NATO thing. We'll we'll get into that. But but what I hear (laughs) but what I hear is you pushing back against the respectability. NATO is the the choice of uh, newly liberated countries. They can make their own choices. Yes. Just so you know. But he's not wrong. Countries make choices. He's not. He's not. He's not wrong (laughs) about people uh, about certain uh, NATO countries not uh, paying their full freight. And that's that's actually true. And that's actually and that's contributed to all kinds of bad pathologies, including. Countries not taking essential responsibility That's for right. their own foreign policy. So you can hide behind your protector and talk shit. And it, granted, that shit is, is, is worthy many times. And by know. the way, the interesting thing about this is the sort of neoconservative prote- uh, perspective, the fuck France perspective, the you know people who wrote these books after 9-11, how France, the, uh, the 
eternal enemy and all these vile France. Yeah, vile France. Our oldest all, enemy. Our oldest enemy. All this stuff. <laughs> it's pretty funny because the uh, Western Europeans at that time, and I was living in Western Europe at the time, played into that stereotype. They loved that stereotype. They loved being the people that were, you know, lifting their fingers up to 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 the White House and to to Washington D.C. and George W. Bush. And then, of course, when the guard changes. And Obama wants to lead from behind, but still lead and still be involved in military interventionism, et cetera. Europe picks it up. I mean, France picks it up in in, in Libya, especially uh, pick it up in in Syria with regards to ISIS. The idea that the sort of 2003 idea that Europe uh, can't defend itself was true in the sense that they didn't want to. But the second America retreated even slightly from that. They were more than happy to fill the void. They weren't just going to sit around and do nothing. And also that France got uh, attacked a time or three. Yeah, well, that, uh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, mean, I don't mean this in a sort of vacuum and isolation. But, you know, the, the, the Libya intervention with France had nothing to do with any any attacks uh, on uh, French soil or on French soil. To speak to the, to, the, to the Trump of it all, though, uh, yeah. and, and this, this exercise of us all trying to play medium and disentangle uh, his various sayings on things yeah. and try to tease out what he actually means. The fact is that none of it really matters. Like he, He's been inconsistent on virtually every point imaginable. Um, and it's not clear that the people who support him are actually paying much attention to the things that he says. Um, I, don't, I don't really know what a Trump presidency might look like. And that in some ways is quite scary. Um, but I think, you know, the, the broader conversation that we wanted to sort of wrap up with and we'll spend, uh, I suppose, a good chunk of the rest of our time talking about just foreign policy broadly on like on that particular question. Um, when we look around the world, uh, recent weeks, we've seen reports of things going somewhat better in Syria and Iraq as they fight back against ISIS, ISIL. Um, and then we've also seen reports uh, in Afghanistan where we've taken out some top guys uh, and uh, in places like Libya, on the other hand, where things aren't going so swell these days. Um, If those were the only trouble spots on Earth, if those were the only places where America was bringing foreign policy, its foreign policy muscle to bear, that'd be one thing. But instead, we've got hundreds and hundreds of bases around the world um, and at any point in time are engaged in who knows how many conflicts. It depends on who you ask. well, last, any, last count I in, saw in any given <laughs> yeah. month, we may drone any one of eight countries. Last count I saw was 134 countries. And special operations right. were engaged in 134 countries. And that's and that's the other way to count. Yep. Just special operations deployment. And granted, some of those deployments mean different things. Maybe we're shooting guns. Maybe right. we're only providing then, arms in some cases. Maybe we're simply in an advisory capacity and we're helping to bring back our girls. And then last year. Last year, <laughs> so, yeah. We're trying, to, we're still trying to find Joseph Coney. I yeah. Think. yeah, oh Coney. <laughs> that was amazing my, that, that my favorite campaign. Yeah. 20, what was that? Coney twenty twelve? Because what is yeah. it? Twenty sixteen? No. Yeah, uh, Coney <laughs> Wayne Allen Group twenty twelve. So, by the way, to that point, it is actually an interesting thing of like the Joseph Coney thing is a great example of how you can get Americans sort of rah-rah about almost anything in foreign policy. I mean, the Lord's Resistance Army has not only nothing to do with the United States, it is not like a a significant force where it exists. So this idea in 2012 that this uh, slickly edited video, which got how many million views? Like 20, like 100, like over 100 million. Unprecedented response. Crazy. And the only thing that prevented us from getting... Uh, Joseph Coney was the guy who ended up masturbating in the street in San Diego. <laughs> Correct. Because he had like a psychotic episode. What? But he, it's true. Yeah. It's on yeah, YouTube. It's on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. He was just jerking it in public. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't find Coney, but he found, <laughs> he found something, found something yeah. in his pants. But it's something. like amazing. How, like, everyone's like Joseph Coney, like, I, you know, I love when there's an increased knowledge of foreign policy and foreign affairs, but like, I don't think any of my friends should know who Joseph Coney is. Like, it's really kind of crazy. It's like, you don't even know who your two senators are. You're telling me about Joseph Coney? So the thing about American foreign policy is that if you get into the White House and you say 130, 120, you know, whatever active drones, eight, nine, and you pull out totally, it's like, the American people are mercurial about this stuff. And I have always wondered about this. this is just speculation. I have no idea. I always wonder how popular that would be. 
I mean, after Iraq, after huge disasters, people say, let's let's, you know, let's retreat into America for a little bit. But, you know, when terrorist attacks happen, I mean, the people who say we're one terrorist attack away from President Trump, even a terrorist attack in Belgium or in France, I don't think that that's wrong. I don't think, you know, I don't advise it, but I don't think that that instinct of the American, I don't think that prediction is wrong, that the American electorate will lurch towards the more kind of muscular, quote unquote, muscular or the more militaristic candidate. And so, I mean, the problem in a lot of ways is the American people, because if the American people didn't want this stuff, trust me, like Hillary Clinton becoming a huge lefty in this in this campaign, I think everyone would be huge anti-interventionists if they thought the American people actually wanted the voters wanted that. Well, that actually happened during this presidential campaign, right? I mean, as soon as ISIS started slitting throats, that was the That's single right. most consumed news item in 10 years when they did the online throat slitting. Yeah. And that, uh, you could argue, it did as much to sink the campaign of Rand Paul as anyone, because suddenly the energy of being anti-Syrian yeah. in- intervention in August of 2013, which had come, you know, on a series of these the Edward Snowden revelations happened mm-hmm. in 2013. There's a bunch of stuff that the winds were blowing in that direction really strongly in 2013. By the end of 2014, suddenly people for the first time after long dissatisfaction and righteous dissatisfaction with our ongoing presence, even in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, suddenly that started to reverse a little bit. And uh, and and uh, I think, sadly, it's it's still kind of there, although it's unsettled. The other part of that, which kind of rubs against that, um, is that that sort of in between the 35 yard lines foreign policy, um, which uh, take the the fad framing as just kind of a constant Wilsonianism, which it pretty much is (laughs) different flavors or emphases at any given point. Um, If you we had a piece about five years ago, I think from Scott Rasmus, and I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Um, When you ask we we at reason, we had reason uh, magazine, free minds, free markets. OG, hashtag Matt. Um, uh, hashtag Matt, by the way, is a pretty good hashtag. It's going to bring up a lot of stuff. That's my solo record. It's hashtag Matt. Uh, Ooh, what's is, going on in the world of Matt today? Uh, is that when you ask Americans who we should have uh, treaty uh, relationships with, what countries, only four or five get 60% or more. And that's basically the Anglosphere, England, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, Canadian peoples, uh, and Israel. And Mm -hmm. everyone else is like, yeah, you know, go fuck yourselves. Uh, So I think that there is a gap between the basic, uh, like, intervention skepticism and imperial skepticism of Americans and then they're the Moynihan-ish kind of uh, what happens if we get punched in the nose, we're going to freak out. Yeah. Uh, Go with that. Yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? No. Uh, yeah. It's a conversation, man. Uh, I mean, so, you know, the point you're making, Michael, earlier was, you know, that Americans don't know anything. And I think you're right about that. They certainly don't. I'm sure most Americans don't know that we have 800 military bases scattered around the world. Right. So let's close some and see Eight, what happens. 800 plus. I can't imagine they would care too much if we closed, you know, half tomorrow. Would they even notice, right? Would they care? Would they be up in arms about that? Um, do Amer- are Americans invested in having special ops forces in 134 countries? Are Americans invested in dropping 23,000 bombs in five countries from drones in the last year? I don't know. Good stats. Look at that. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, the, the, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I do think they. I, you're right. I mean, I think you're all right about that. They respond to you know quote, terrorist attacks yeah. uh, with this demand for something, some kind of vengeance, right? Which is sort of Trumpian. It's not It's not ideological. There's no global vision. It's not Wilsonian. This mm-hmm. is just sort of this this muscular, masculine kind of nationalist. Get the bad guys. Yeah, get the get get them dead. Um, so I, I, I can work with that, right? What I can't work with is someone who thinks that the United States should have 800 military bases, should have influence in every single country, should be shaping the direction of the politics of every country on earth. I mean, that's Hillary Clinton, that's Barack, Barack Obama and all their lineage. You know, so I actually am more in some ways, I feel more optimistic about a, a Trump God, presence <laughs> on foreign <laughs> policy. Just, just in that narrow way. I do yeah. think he'd be a disaster in the Middle East. I'm not sure he'd be much worse in the Middle East. But I do think it'd be interesting to see him uh, pull back elsewhere. I think he would. Uh, or or Sanders. I mean, I, I appreciate Sanders. It. Yeah. I mean, I got all he's irritates me in a hundred ways, but I do think, yeah, he's the best of them, I suppose, although he's pro drone. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think Bernie would be the best. Let me ask you this question yeah. because it uh, uh, it makes uh, me and Michael feel superior at any given point. But uh, <laughs> you're, that's what I'm here for. I have <laughs> no idea where this is going. By the way, uh, no. I, but for me, with the, one of the problems with Trump, even if you believed Justin Raimondo's analysis mm. of Trump's foreign policy, which <laughs> I think no, he's getting name dropped. Uh, I, I, I have right? no idea who that is. But thank <laughs> yeah, you. yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, but it, that's only one major incident away from. Uh, you know, like something terrible happens here. Trump turns to who knows about yeah. that thing. Yeah. And when you turn to who knows about that thing abroad, it is almost never Thad Russell. <laughs> the people who yeah. are anti-interventions, who are, who are skeptical about American well, empire, with some exceptions, and I hope you tell us those exceptions because it'll make us have better conversations, are not are, are not the, the, the right. intervention skeptics. But who have other presidents turned to? They right. turn to the Hawks. Yeah. yeah. They're always so, I mean, that's, that's, that's Camille's argument. What I'm saying is that the, the anti-interventionists need to pay attention to foreign policy more than just to have a blanket, simplistic view in the world. I think that Ron Paul has a blanket, simplistic view on foreign policy in many ways. If you ask him about Crimea, which uh, which Camille did on the independence, uh, much to Camille's uh, eternal regret, probably mm. uh, like it's his, a sad day. his his the only way he could look at it was that this is a result of American intervention. Like I was like, you know, look, Putin just kind of annexed a part of a country. He's like, yeah, we really should. His, his argument, him. his argument was actually that Putin's intervention was <laughs> the the cause of it was United States foreign policy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, look, I think I think in I mean, not in fairness to Ron Paul, but in fairness to the kind of anti-interventionist worldview, there's two types of this, right? There really are, and and this is not some sort of neocon talking point. There really are people that are anti-interventionist, and not so much that they're anti-war. They're just kind of on the other side, and you know, don't really care so much right. about Russian aggression. And they'll make this argument like, well, my interests are what America does. Well, that's not always true. I mean, yeah. there's there's well, there, there's a lot of people that have defended you know Serbian fascism at, during the 1990s because the United States was 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 bombing in the Balkans. You can make the argument without being on the other side. And that's the thing that I think trips up a lot of, um, you know, because to Ron Paul's point, I think there's a there, there's kind of a reflex and an instinct to say, well, we did this. We right. are omnipresent and omnipowerful, which I don't think is always true. I, I mean, I I don't have any problem with this sort of anti-interventionist critique of all sorts of things. And, you know, I wish I'd listened harder in the past 15 years to a lot of this stuff. But I think what separated me was when I went to anti-war marches or when I engaged in the argument with people, I was like, OK, I don't really trust you because you're not arguing in good faith. What you're basically saying is, is that I read Howard Zinn's book. I'm sort of chopped at. <laughs> United States is always wrong, and therefore, well, and then look, we extrapolate. There's a lot of that that exists. But to, to the point of people who who only see that vision, and I think that's probably in the pages of the Weekly Standard, et cetera, that isn't the only vision. Right. And I, I do get sort of put off, and I, and I have to sort of realign myself and reorient myself to realize that when Ron Paul is saying, well, you know, you know, yeah. it's, it's you got to understand, Putin, that's not the only uh, argument here. The, there, are, there are thoughtless advocates of every perspective imaginable. <laughs> um, and there are certainly more thoughtless people that read National Review and Weekly Standard every day um, than thoughtful people who actually know a little bit about these subjects. That is that is the truth. People read things and, and just don't pick up anything. Um, I, I think that actual spat that Ron and I had, the really, really sad one, uh, was when he had some lunatic writing in the, oh, yeah. on the pages of one of his blogs uh, about 9-11 conspiracies. And if you are listening and you are one of those 9-11 is an inside job people, don't tweet at me. Don't email me. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you to listen to this podcast. Actually, I do. I Probably want you not. to download it every week. Yeah. But I want you to stop believing stupid things. It's a click. But, but, but that, that being said, um, I do think that, that the perspective of the non-interventionist, broadly speaking, is one that ought to acknowledge the complexity of the world. And you are a non-interventionist because you recognize that all of this stuff is inter interconnected in really difficult to disentangle ways. Uh, and that doing one thing here tends to have consequences that you did not suspect would happen, i.e. this blowback business that we've talked about uh, a few times and that Thad is uh, constantly talking about. And I think that's the perspective. And quite frankly, I suspect amongst the four of us in this room, there's a broad agreement that the number of bases, the number of interventions that we're currently involved in, even the way that we go about those things is probably not making America on net safer. Um, so if there is a question, it's who should we be 
allying with where should we be intervening, if anywhere, or is there a broader lesson to be extrapolated from this? That being, look, unless someone is knocking on your door and threatening you with violence, you should probably stay the hell out of it. And I suspect that we have um, split opinions and perspectives. On, I was on at uh, well, I was at the Manhattan Institute uh, uh, dinner like uh, three months ago here, and Robert D. Kaplan. At one point was a liberal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. all were. They all uh, were. Yeah, they all were. Uh, he was a guy who wrote this wonderful book called Balkan Ghosts. I remember uh, that. Yeah. Uh, that became kind of like the uh, source. It was, you know, about the complexities of the in history of the Balkans. He'd been a correspondent in Greece. And this book was used by the early, the first Clinton administration, partly as kind of an intellectual justification for not intervening. And Kaplan, in my very uh, crude kind of uh, view, um, uh, took that badly he's like oh that wasn't what you're supposed to do and since then he's been going hawkish more hawkish and hawkish his manhattan institute talk um was amazing he was talking about uh to a crowd that was uh pretty neoconservative uh not exclusively about uh the totally we america must rule the south china sea forever um just like we did in the philippines a hundred years ago um you know that uh, when we had the monroe doctrine in latin america and we uh, and we controlled the pacific that's what we need to do and there wasn't even a moment of acknowledgement that there might be any critique against what happened when america became an empire and who was on the receiving end of it and the atrocities that were committed and the kind of the the pathologies that were created from that there wasn't even a single note in a long tub thumping speech uh my view and this could be crazy and maybe uh, that'll agree with me because it is crazy is that <laughs> is that the whole american superpower thing is suddenly people who otherwise talk about the virtues of competition get squirrely mm-hmm. when anybody doesn't even compete with America's imperial view, but they yeah. kind of compete with a little bit of it on the side and they freak out. There cannot be another person asserting authority in a kind of ambitious way anywhere in the world. Uh, and, you know, even if China is terrible and of course, red China is terrible <laughs> because they're red China. Um, like, I think America should have competition, ideological uh, competition, and that would make us better and and like the competition isn't to control as much as possible it's to influence hopefully through the the good force of our ideas and the good force of our commerce and not the brute force of our weapons well it's actually by the way it's an interesting point because if you look at every book that was published about foreign policy by mainstream kind of foreign policy analysts a lot of whom are were neocons that wrote books about iraq uh look at everything from september 10th Uh, 2001, for maybe three or four years before, every single book was about China. And if Mm -hmm. China was that big of a threat, we abandoned China from September 12th, 2001, to basically now. And what was the result of that? Because the uh, the arguments that were made was that if we we ignored the threat of China, we were ignoring, you know, a very, very big thing that would blow up in our face. And we did ignore it for 10 years or 15 years. So, I mean, it's it's, it's actually worth looking, you know, at what happened and at those books again. We're looking at the bad predictions about Iraq. There's actually a bunch of bad predictions prior to September 11th about China. And also North Korea was going to blow us all up. Yeah, it still might. Um, But that was about, (laughs) I saw him about to say something or punch you or I don't I can't remember. Yeah. So in the in the first five minutes of this podcast, the first episode of, the, of this podcast, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Moynihan went yeah. on a, a long jag, which is basically the reason I'm here today. Um, about, we got about um, eight minutes left. Well, I just wanted, I just wanted, <laughs> and time to wrap. No, I just wanted Cut to get some. Mic. I wanted to get some clarification. So, I mean, I heard you talking about this. I think this was post Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. you know, and you made you know an argument about how blowback theorists are fools for ignoring, yeah. willfully ignoring the ideology sure. of Islamists, right? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure I've ever seen a blowback theorist do that. Maybe oh, they exist. maybe the okay. monocausal theorist. Well, blowback is out there. okay, but I mean, so so I hear that argument a lot these days from people, <laughs> and I'm not comparing you to them, but you know, people like these new atheists, you know, Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. Etc. You know, go on and on and on and on and on about, you know, we need to talk about the ideology of Islamists. And that's the real problem. And no one's standing up to that. No one's identifying that as the problem. And my my question for them is always like, so what if we did? What if we so what we're supposed to do is tell them that they're bad and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it is absolutely true. There's no question that the ideology of those people had something to do with the fact that they blow up people. Uh, yeah, certainly. They have a lot, okay. a lot so it also yeah. seems to me 
incontrovertible that another cause of that is their idea that U.S. intervention over the last 60 years in the Middle East, in their countries, is another cause, is, is another grievance that is another cause of it. Okay, so it seems to me we can do something about the latter cause. We can't do anything about their ideology. We can't change their minds about the Quran. We, but, yeah, okay. we can certainly, <laughs> but we can certainly remove the cause of the grievance, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, well, you'd have to agree that that was the, the, the that was the big grievance. I mean, a, a couple a couple points that I would make. I I do think that I run into more people who who are willing. And actually, there's a there's a parallel with the sort of Sam Harris is here. The second you know Charlie Hebdo happened, there were pieces, and you can find them. And I I tweeted them. Matt tweeted. It was like this yeah. is about okay. France's foreign policy. So I mean, obviously, what what is happening here is that you can never satisfy people of a particular ideology. If it's, you know, if it's not foreign policy, you know, it's sending girls to school. If it's not sending girls to school, it's drawing uh, pictures that somebody thinks is uh, obscene, etc. I think the thing that the parallel, by the way, with the with people like Sam Harris is that the second something like this happens, people are trying to shoehorn it into their ideology. So yeah. Sam Harris is is going on and on and on about about ideology of Islamism because he's an atheist. There are people who go on and on and on about America's interventionism because they're sort of, you know, Chomskyites, or yeah. it doesn't make a difference what they are. But what that does is it cause, causes people to come to conclusions before they actually adjudicate the evidence. And I think this happens quite frequently. I mean, I, I mean what I said in that podcast, and then I'll, I'll let you respond, but what I said in that podcast, I, if I remember correctly, is that there is something particular about this ideology that I think is undeniable because there are a lot of countries that are suffering under the boot heels of other countries and other occupations that do nothing like this. That, you know, there's not a lot of Tibetan suicide bombers. There are not, you know, if there's a Greek guy, you know, who's in the army and, and, you know, he's not Nadal Hassan, um, you know, and and shooting up, you know, uh, because he's mad mad about Turkey occupying Cyprus or something. I mean, there's a number of of these things, but whereas, you know, for instance, at Bataclan, you know, it's. I think that people can say that it's occupation. You could also just say, "Who cares?" That's the first response. The second one is, is it's always lots of different things. So Bataclan, you said you have in their little manifesto, they they were mad about the club. You know, this idea they hate us for our freedom is stupid and it's reductionist. But you could actually modify that to something real. And they said, that the, I can't remember the line. It was like the prostitutes prostituting themselves and dancing in this club and they must be destroyed for this. So unfortunately, the blowback thing, you know, just sort of consumes everything and people tend to, to ignore this. Other so stuff if, it, if it is a problem of ideology, yeah. then the only answer is to kill them. I don't think so. No, but I don't that's think you, where I don't, your argument no, leads. No, 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 no. I don't think you kill racists. I don't think you bomb them. I don't think you shoot racists. Well, we're not. Are we going to change their minds by arguing with them? Uh, we by, have by I mean, shaming them. Sh- well, not shaming them, but there's a lot of there's a lot of. I mean, look, the Bataclan thing, the uh, Molenbeek stuff, the the Belgian stuff, almost all of the attacks in the UK, almost all of the stuff in Europe where it is a quote unquote existential threat. I mean, I don't believe in trying to clean up the mess in the Middle East anymore. Uh, you know, but in in Western Europe. These are people of Western Europe. They're all almost always second generation. And there are a number of programs in here where people do try to, you know, get people when they're young and say, hey, you know, not 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 the best time to go to Syria. And especially in France, they face tremendous discrimination. Right. And, and, and I, so it's not just foreign policy. I mean, there's yeah, there's anti there's anti Arabism in many ways that they're experiencing. I think there's a lot of discrimination. I think we'd agree that that we probably the, yeah. the problem here is always being monocausal about this, that there is a single sole thing that is responsible for all of this. And, and I I mean, I'm inclined to, to agree with you that 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 we can certainly talk about the cultural deficiencies that actually produce the sort of violence that we're seeing. Like, we can't have a conversation about that. I do think it is it is impossible to wave a wand and make that stuff disappear. Um, and I don't... There are certainly idiots who will make an argument that that is never, ever a problem, that that's not a part of the equation at all. There are also lunatics who will exaggerate the degree to which that is the principal problem. Sure. When I look at a place sure. like Tunisia, like today, yeah. um, and the reforms that are actually happening there, that is very promising. Yeah. Um, and certainly the notion that it's just it is Islam writ large that is fundamentally yeah, responsible I, I for this. Mean, that's I not the argument you're never, making. Never that's that. not the no. argument you're making. Never, there are never. people like yeah. Sam Harris, I think it's fair to say, who do, in fact, make that argument. And that is 
that is deeply problematic. Well, I think I think that I mean I can't speak for Sam Harris. I don't know Sam Harris, but I think the argument there. I, I think the argument there him. is that it is a ideologically. It is, you know, as he said on Bill Maher's show, the mother load of bad ideas. And when you have that mother load, some people are, I mean, more but, people are more inclined to do that. I mean, I'm not going to defend his ideas because yeah, they're not mine. Right. But I think that, you know, in, you know, we have to look also at what happened, you know, on September 10th, um, you know, prior to the intervention in Iraq, prior to, I mean, America had been pulling out of Saudi Arabia even uh, prior to the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And if you look at Osama bin Laden's writings, I mean, what he's saying in the 90s is the Somalia thing. Um, you know, and he's, he's like, America's a paper tiger. You know, we blow things up and they back away. Let's go forward. Uh, you know, and that, that was bin Laden's argument up until 2011. And there were, there were so many people like, you know, within the ranks and Peter Bergen has written about this quite a bit that were saying, you know what? You're going to be wrong about this if we hit the World Trade Center. But the kind of idea from Al Qaeda at the time was that America didn't want to fight. So but didn't, fight didn't he them. also suggest, though, that wasn't it prior to September 11th that he suggested that if we if we blow things up and they attack us, we can bleed them dry? There, there's there, there's uh, there are people also within uh, the Zawahiri argument, too, yeah. that we can ble- we can bleed them dry. And they were um, right about that. Yeah. And, and it is yeah. interesting. I mean, look, terrorism is a, is a <laughs> difficult uh, problem to try to crack. There are plenty of people who've done very good thinking about this. But it's also worth noting historically, like a hundred odd years ago. We did have a wave of anarchist terrorism in this country. Yeah. Actually, more than a hundred years ago, you can still see the the mm-hmm. impressions from the, yes. the detonations on Wall Street. On Wall Street. Yeah. Um, it, it's worth going to look. We thought that would never end. We yeah. <laughs> people thought that would never end. That it would never go away. Well, um, Europe, did, Europe, in, Europe in the nineteen seventies was a, was yeah. a lot of a, United I mean, States. Uh, the, 1970s. the United States sure. in the nineteen seventies too. Tamil Tigers and uh, uh, you know uh, Brian Burroughs' new book about uh, Days of Rage. About I mean, it's it's a different thing, obviously, because. The, you know, it, it was less of a cult of death in which death was actually uh, deliverance and actually yeah. was the goal and the victory. It was that's why you're setting off bombs in front of the Chase Manhattan building at three in the morning if you're a Puerto Rican, uh, you know, uh, nationalist. independent nationalist, yeah. you know, an right. FALN guy. But no, I mean, I think that, that, that I wish I knew how to eradicate the ideology. I don't think I'd be doing this podcast if I did. <laughs> I'd be making millions in consulting fees or something. But my friend Shiraz Mahar, who used to be a member of Hizbut Tahrir, and I saw him. Uh, last week, and he was uh, very close friends with the guy who um, is now in prison, who tried to blow up the Glasgow airport with the um, car full of explosives and failed. But, you know, I've talked to him extensively about this and about what brings people to the battlefield. And he was, you know, a half step away himself from going to the battlefield. And, what, and you know, he, you can read about this, his own story of what, you know, brought him away from Islamism. But, you know, it, it is, in his estimation, a huge problem. He fell. Uh, he was enchanted by this idea that all of his problems were created. And to Thad's point, which you know, I, I, I don't think is wrong. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of of emphasis, and I, you know, how much emphasis you give it. If American foreign policy or British foreign policy being the things that motivated, and if this went away, uh, the ideology would go away. But we can I don't re- believe that. That's but we true. can remove the foreign policy. We can't remove those ideas. I don't believe that that's true. I don't believe that you can't remove the ideas because the, the ideas are a recent of recent vintage. I mean, you know, before I mean, in, well, in the, in the Middle East, them think but in the, in the Middle East yeah. in the 1970s, the dominant idea from groups that were blowing things up, well, they were Marxist groups, the PFLP, like George Habash. Yeah. And these guys were Marxist and they were working with Western uh, German, Italian uh, left wing terrorists. And the Islamist terrorism wasn't really a thing. It came out of somewhere. And if it came out of somewhere, can you can you stop it? There was I think you probably there was can. no Islamist terrorism at all before 1948. None. And there was yeah. none against the United States before 1968 when the, that was the year the United States became the beneficiary of Israel. Yeah, but why then there wasn't any until 2011. So, I mean, what was what was happening in those periods? Between 1968 and 2011, I mean, they were just kind of planning. I mean, I I think it's a, I think it's a different. I mean, but I mean, where is I mean, there, the United States has not been a target of Islamist terrorism in this country. Actually, contrary to the ideas of many neoconservatives, uh, that much, right? I mean, Nadal Hassan saying, you know, I'm mad about um, Israel uh, in America funding the kind of IDF or something, so I'm going to kill a bunch of people in my base. I mean, do you change America? You say, oh, God, well, he's pissed off. We should maybe stop doing that. The other thing is there's blowback that goes both ways, too, by the way. Do we get blowback? Do we get to be angry about things and have our own version of blowback? Do we? I mean, like it's, what? what? Sure. I, I, I think you could make the make the argument that there are unintended consequences to their policy as well. But 
to Thad's point. I mean, the war in Afghanistan is blowback against Al-Qaeda. To Thad's point, though, I think if we're going to talk about blowback in a a U.S. context as American citizens, like, it's it's a little difficult to talk about other people's policy decisions in the same context. Again, it doesn't make make us people who are ignoring other factors. But we have gone... Very, very long here. No, we've only gone um, three minutes long. No, oh, wow. We've gone, when I three say very, very long. long, I mean very long with this particular but portion of the topic. conversation. We're having a good conversation. But I, I want to wind Stop it down quickly. Jerk. I want to take two and a half seconds to do Some Idiot Wrote This, um, <laughs> oh, which, which for me is not Some Idiot Wrote This. It is Some Idiot Said This. There okay. was this uh, Telemundo, um, <laughs> Telemundo interview. Well, you got to uh, be racist with, every with Bernie time. Sanders. <laughs> Uh, Bernie Sanders refusing to answer a question, not Telemundo, Univision, but yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. I don't know the don't, difference. Don't say wow. it's all the same. I don't know the difference because <laughs> I don't understand Spanish. Uh, but I There's do literally a Spanish notes. podcast anyway. right now. They're like ABC, NBC, see who cares? Yeah, same thing. Same thing. And they're right. <laughs> yeah, they're not totally right. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, this Univision <laughs> interview where Bernie Sanders <laughs> is asked about the uh, failure of the Venezuelan government and Bernie Sanders refuses to answer any of the questions that are asked and says, I am running for president of the United States. I would play the audio of this, but it is covered by someone speaking in Spanish. So you wouldn't actually understand God, unless you understood Spanish. Stops. Yeah, but I don't know Spanish, yeah. so I'm not going to pay. Why don't we just build a wall? And it's not Camille. racist for me to not want to play the Spanish language <laughs> audio on an English language podcast. Yeah. There's nothing racist I, about that. This is an English only podcast. It's not yeah. an English only podcast, but Bernie Sanders is a coward. Who won't defend the ideas Just build a wall. that he advocates for here in this country? So that <laughs> wow. he is, he gets it this week, um, deservedly so. And by the way, has has he? And this is an honest question: Has he dodged any other questions about any other events elsewhere in the world? Because he's been asked about like stuff in the Middle East uh, and stuff. You know, uh, the, he was really irritated at one of the early debates that they he, insisted on talking about foreign Cuba. policy. He dodged Cuba. Didn't oh, he? he dodged Cuba too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't like hard questions. Yeah, when he was uh, on that debate was after the attacks in Paris. Yeah, the the campaign complained to the DNC and said, "We don't want this to change and talk about foreign policy." Yeah, and I think that is to the earlier point of it. You know, the Americans at that point were just like you know covering themselves in pig blood. And they're like, let's go get him. And, and Sanders like, uh, no, please, let's talk about. Yeah, I don't know. Which doesn't. Oh really man, be, we have, we could do Bernie scent. Yeah, I, I, I love it. Show. Really bad one. Really bad. <laughs> the affirmative Sorry. action. The Sorry. affirmative action ber- question Bernie gets uh, in the debate, which he answers by somehow coming back around to speculators, which is just like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's Wall Street <laughs> greed. Yeah, yep. that makes a lot of sense. Well, kids, this has been a tremendous amount of fun, uh, but we do have to go. Um, I would invite you to check us out at wethefifth.com, um, at wethefifth on Twitter. I want to thank our special guest, Thad Russell, for making a trip all the way across the continent. Thad, what's your Twitter handle? join us. Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus Russell's. He's at Thaddeus Russell. You have to put the at sign in there. there you uh, buy his book, Renegade History of the United States. It will change your life. It's a good book. Yeah. Or Thad will give you your money back. No, he won't. <laughs> nope. Camille will. <laughs> He's not. not going to I, right. I might. And you won't want your Later. money. Later. Right? The Trojan Horror. The fifth column, column, column.